Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. On Saturday mornings, I like to cook breakfast for my family. My uh, three little amigos, about to be four any day now, they like to sit on the kitchen counter and just watch dad cook breakfast. I don't know why it's so entertaining. Maybe it's like watching an animal in this, behind a cage or you know, waiting to see if I'm going to burn the house down. I don't know. But we just hang out on Saturday morning in the kitchen and cook breakfast. And I guess you could say we're a bit old-fashioned because we still like to eat that canned corned beef hash. Do we have any corned beef hash fans here? Yes. Some people think it's cat food, but I, I like it. My kids love it. And you can imagine how disappointed we would be if I went to open up that can of corned beef hash and there were green beans inside instead. It said on the label corned beef hash, but you open it up and there's green beans instead. Not exactly what I want to eat with my eggs, green beans and eggs. I've heard of green eggs and ham, but... My kids at that point, I think, would say they would probably be pleading with my wife to cook breakfast instead if I was going to cook that. But labels and contents, the label on the outside and the contents inside are basically what we're going to talk about today because Paul is going to address the Jews who have the label Jew but aren't a Jew internally. The contents of their heart spiritually aren't lining up with the label that they have as Jews. So that's what we're going to talk about. Paul's going to demonstrate how the Jews don't live up to their name, and they are under the wrath of God, just like the Gentiles in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1, and just like the moralist, which we looked at last week in chapter 2, verse 1 through 16. So he's basically condemning the the whole world, putting the whole world under sin. The Gentile, the moralist, now the Jew. And it's important to remember that we are in the section called the sin section of Romans. This is not the salvation section. We're in the bad news section of the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul is presenting the universal need for justification. How we all need to be justified because we're all condemned by God as sinners. And that's the bad news Romans is a book about the good news of the gift of God's righteousness that he gives to men through faith in Christ. But before that happens, before people are willing to accept that gift, often they need to understand the bad news first that we're not righteous. And we're in need of that gift. So that's what we're going to look at. And first thing we're going to see in our outline is that the law cannot save The Jew, verses 17 through 24. 
verse 17 says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, key word there was rely. Rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So last week, I presented the the situation classic scenario 150,000 people face this situation every day, basically. They, they die, they stand before God, and, and, and should God ask, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say to that? You're standing there, and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to that? What would you turn to? And you have to be careful how you answer that question, because... How you answer that question reveals what you're relying on to make you right with God and to get you into heaven. It reveals what you're relying on. The pagan that we saw in chapter 1, he just willfully rejects righteousness. He don't want nothing to do with that. God, he don't want nothing to do with God. So he's going where he's going. Right? Um, the moralist would have answered, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't do this. And I do do this, so therefore, I'm more righteous at least than that guy over there. I mean, I've never killed anybody, for heaven's sake. I should get in. I'm, I'm pretty good. Well, he's relying on his own self-righteousness, and he fails miserably at coming up with a righteousness that's good enough to get into heaven, as we talked about last week. And then we've got the religious Jew now that Paul addresses at the end of chapter 2, who tends to rely on his religious works to get him into heaven. And I found this meme a long time ago, but this is kind of what it's like. It's a good picture of what it's like when you try to rely on your own righteousness or religious works to get you into heaven. You try to be the source of your own righteousness. It just doesn't work. It doesn't get you anywhere. So when it comes to the Jews, though, think of... You know, they're, they're trying to present a righteousness, I think, to God. They would, they would claim basically four different things. And I like to think of them as four legs on a stool to prop them up, to hold them up before God. Number one would be the law, primarily. They're trusting in the law. They're keeping of the law or having the law to hold them up. They might be trusting in their circumcision. They're trusting in their natural birth, just being a descendant of Abraham physically. And they would also uh, just argue theologically for it. And we'll look at that next week. But in chapters 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, 
the rest of the bad news section, basically. Paul is going to kick out every one of these four legs from underneath the Jew that they're relying on to make them righteous. There's four legs. He's going to kick all of them out, and he's going to expose even the religious Jew to God's condemnation and their need for righteousness. And it's starting with the law. We know Paul is speaking to the Jew because in his diatribe style of discussion here, he addresses an imaginary Jew directly. He says, but if you, just kind of an imaginary opponent, bear the name Jew. And it might be translated, but if you're called a Jew, or to fit my opening analogy a little bit better, if you're labeled a Jew, then that word Jew comes from the, the tribal name Judah. For some reason that stuck. And even though you're not from the tribe of Judah, you would still be called a Jew. And that comes from the Hebrew root, yada, which means to praise. So that's what the word Jew means. It means to praise. And that's a name that they were all proud of. They believed anyone who bore the name Jew brought praise to God. And this is critical. You want to take note of this. Paul is thinking of the meaning of the name Jew when he writes this section. He's using a play on words here. He's saying essentially that, in effect, okay, you call yourself a Jew. You call yourself praising God, but does your life, does the contents of your heart and life really give praise to God? So what he's saying is, does the contents, what's really going on inside your heart, match the label? It's interesting. And in a series of if clauses in verses uh, 17 through 20, Paul lists several advantages that the Jews had over the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that should have made them a God-honoring people. So that's what we see in verses 17 through 20, the advantages of being a Jew. They had a unique covenant relationship with God that no one else had. They were a unique nation chosen by God, still are. God gave them the law to carry out that covenant in keeping with that covenant. God entrusted them, that nation, no one else with it. And Paul says that the law is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So they were in a very privileged position having the law. They were instructed out of it, he says. And that word instructed, catecheo, is where we get like our term for catechism. You guys have been catechized in the law. You guys know it inside and out, have it memorized, that sort of thing. And therefore, they knew his will. You could be, they could be guides to the blind Gentiles. They could be lights to those in darkness, teachers of the immature. These are all things that the Jews would have called themselves. We're guides to the blind, lights to those in darkness, teachers of the immature. And this is what they were to be in practice. And this is why God placed them on the map where he did. He placed them right at that intersection of the three continents there in the only green strip of land that everybody would have traveled through back in that day. It's what you call the epicenter of the world. He wanted people, other foreign nations, as they passed through Israel, from Europe to Africa to Asia, he, to basically see how Israel was unlike any other nation 
and they were blessed because they kept God's law and they were to show people the way to God and the ways of God. And that probably climaxed in the days of Solomon and when even the Queen of Sheba came up and, you know, everybody saw how God had blessed Israel. It was amazing. It was an amazing time period in their, in, in their history. But Paul, Paul is going to argue that while they have the advantage of having the law, the law is not enough to take care of the sin problem. Never has been, never will be. So they relied, if you rely upon the law, they relied upon the law a little bit too much. And a lot of it too much. Because the, the law basically became their idol and their savior. They thought that just because they had the law, not all of them, I can't, shouldn't, you don't want to lump them all into one group, but a lot of the Jewish thinking then was that if I, if we, just because we have the law or just because we keep the law, then we're going to be saved. We're exempt from condemnation. They called themselves the righteous ones who were exempt from wrath just because of who they were and because they had the law. And Paul's going to teach in Romans that the law, while good and while helpful, and if they kept it, would be God-honoring, it still wasn't enough to save their soul. They were using the law in a way that God never intended, essentially. They were trying to use the law, keeping the law, in order to sort of conjure up a righteousness that they could present to God when the law, the purpose of the law, the main purpose of it was to reveal sin, to show them they aren't good enough, that they do need a sacrifice, they do need a savior. It was a tutor, an instructor meant to lead them to Christ and they really didn't uh, see that purpose. So no one has ever been justified, no one has ever been saved by keeping the law and so their confidence in keeping it actually became their condemnation. And to keep them from thinking they could keep the law to be saved, Paul does a little interrogation here in verses 21 through 24. You, you probably noticed several rhetorical questions. You, therefore, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say one shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? In the implied answer, the assumed answer is, yes, they do, which means they've broken the law. I think those, those first couple of questions there, uh, the second and third question actually, you who preach one shall not steal, do you steal? You who commit adultery, do you commit adultery? I think basically what Paul's doing there is a lot like what Jesus did and many other rabbis during that time did. Uh, you, you might not steal, but you covet and that was stealing spiritually, in a spiritual sense. Uh, you might not, the Jews didn't really, you know, they, they understood adultery was wrong. But they still lusted, Jesus made the point. So, that's basically what Paul's doing there. He's, he's breaking down their false sense of security and pride. They broke the law. And Paul, well, James actually says, whoever breaks one command is guilty of breaking them all. 
If you've broken it once, you did not keep it. You have to keep it perfectly in order to be justified by it. And only one person did that, right? Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of discussion about, this could have been a sidebar this morning, but there's, there's a lot of discussion about what Paul means by, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What's that all about? Well, after the exiles to Assyria and Babylon, the Jews no longer struggled with blatant idolatry. We know they all had idols in their heart. They probably had idols of, you know, Husker football like we do. And Just kidding. But they shunned idolatry. But the Gentiles, uh, they had temples and they were still considered sacred. And Fruchtenbaum, one commentator, wrote that not even a crooked Gentile would steal from a pagan temple. And so consequently, pagan temples were often used as, as banks, and the people would bring their money to them, to the temple, for safekeeping. And wanting to prove that the idols were of no account, he says some Jews went into these sacred temples and stole the money, or they stole the idols, and if they were successful, it showed that the idols were worthless in protecting the property so it's showing that their god is worthless you see a little bit of this in the old testament as well and you see a cross-reference in acts 19 27 where they blame paul for doing the same thing to artemis or the ephesians but uh, rather than destroying the idols made from the precious metals that you know like God commanded them to in the law, they would actually melt it down and they would actually make money off it and they were honoring God because they were destroying the idols. And see how, I see how that would, in their imperfect conscience, you could say they were honoring God that way. How do you think the Gentiles viewed that? <laughs> they viewed it as thievery. The Jews are stealing from us. They didn't see it as God honoring at all. They're just like, they're stealing from us. It's, you know, it's no different, I think, than when Christians try to do graffiti in the name of the Lord today. They try to share the gospel on a bathroom stall or a public place. There's a better way to share the gospel than through graffiti, because not everybody sees that the same way. You see it as God honoring, but the person who has to clean it sees it as a sin. Okay? You're destroying, defacing public property. I digress. Paul quotes Isaiah 52.5 saying, The name of Israel's God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their hypocrisy, because of what they were doing. And even the Gentiles could see the contents of their life don't match their label. They're not praising God. They're stealing. But in one instance, you have to remember Jesus, he called out the Jewish religious leaders, didn't he? For the same thing. It's very, very similar in in parallel he says you you guys are like beautiful whitewashed tombs on the outside well what's on the inside of a tomb dead men's bones crickets you know you know that's what that's what paul is saying outwardly you appear righteous to men but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and so paul comes to the same conclusion here's the results of the interrogation you're condemned for breaking the law You've broken the law. You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? Rather than praising God, they're now seen as dishonoring God. They're not living up to their name. And that's 
where Paul drops the hammer. He's, you know, the judge's hammer, guilty as charged. You boast in your possession of the law, yet you break it and you dishonor God too. And, you know, this is, this is enough to seal the deal. We can stop right here and say, oh, Jews are guilty and let's move on. But what do religious people do? Religious people don't just have one prop. They have several props. They have several religious works that they're trusting in that will hold them up before God on Judgment Day. Um, if you wanted to summarize this whole section through the end of the chapter, you could say the doers of the law will be justified. However, no one keeps the law perfectly, not even the Jews. Therefore, by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified. But again, he's got to keep breaking them down that i mean this should be a wrap on the condemnation of the jews but again it's kind of like have you ever like lifted up a a log and there's bugs underneath you know and the the dark bugs in the darkness are exposed to the light and they run from rock to rock trying to find shelter and refuge well the jews take refuge in several things so a jew might have responded to this uh they might have responded to Paul this way. Perhaps I can't take refuge in the law, but I'm circumcised, and that makes me a child of God. Well, that's what he addresses next in verses 25 through 27 and on through 29. But he says, For indeed, in verse 25, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? When Paul talks about the letter or the letter of the law in his writings, as he often does, he's just referring to the fact that, it, that the old covenant law of Moses was was physically written down like literal tablets right tablets aren't a new thing uh, it was a physical tablet and that tablet the tablets the Ten Commandments are often contrasted with the new covenant work of the Spirit which is written on the tablet of the human heart you're contrasting the physical with the spiritual. We, as Christians, we don't simply obey an external code of commands. We are transformed on the inside by the working of the Spirit through faith in Christ. He changes our hearts so that we become obedient from the heart. And we're going to look at that more in chapter 8. But this internal work of the Spirit is contrasted with the external work of circumcision. So you've got internal and you've got external internal work of the spirit external work of circumcision circumcision is the symbol you would say of the abrahamic covenant the god the covenant god made with abraham in genesis chapter 12 uh, it didn't establish the covenant but it was a sign of it it was a sign saying hey i'm a part of this covenant and circumcision was like another label it identified you externally as a child of God at the time, as one of Abraham's descendants. It allowed you to be part of the community. It allowed you to enter the temple. You couldn't function in a Jewish community without being circumcised. And all of 
Abraham's descendants were to be identified as God's people that way. But historically, because of some of the different foreign policies that had gone on in recent centuries, be it Babylon with their scorched earth policy or Antiochus IV Epiphanes, going in and trying to exterminate the Jews, circumcision became way more important. It became an end-all, be-all. Then you had syncretistic Hellenism, Grecian culture that tried to win the Jews over with food and entertainment, gymnasiums, theaters, libraries. They just tried to enculturate the Jews. And many of the Jews were not getting circumcised anymore, or they were getting reverse circumcisions so that they could play in the Grecian games without being shamed. It was a shame thing. And so it became an end-all, be-all for this people. And it identified you as God's people, which means it was important, but here's the thing. It unnecessarily became a salvation issue. Can you see how that would, how that would happen? You're not identified as God's people, therefore you're not his people. That's exactly what we do with baptism today, isn't it? Many Jews had pleaded, they would have pleaded exemption from judgment on the basis of their circumcision on an external work. A rabbinic saying was that no circumcised man will be lost. Another Jewish commentary on Genesis said, Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna, hell, and he will permit no uncircumcised, or sorry, no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. So like Peter sits at the gates of heaven, people like to think, it's not true, but um, Abraham sat at the gates of hell and wouldn't let anybody come in who was circumcised. So basically, if you're circumcised, you're saved, right? That was their thinking. Uncircumcised. But Paul totally deflates that in this passage. I mean, he just almost ignores that teaching. He teaches the exact opposite. It doesn't matter if you are or not. What matters is faith in Christ. Circumcision or non-circumcision. So you can see why this was such a hotly debated issue in the newborn church, the nascent church. People were saying, faith in Christ isn't enough. You have to be circumcised as well. And what did Paul call that? He called that another gospel. That is not the gospel. That's not the good news. The good news is you're saved by faith in Christ, not by what you do, but what he did on the cross. He makes the point, circumcision doesn't matter. It's of zero value if you don't keep the law. And no one does. It doesn't matter anyway. But the law was the basis for getting circumcised in the first place. And so if you're not, if you're not keeping the law, it's doesn't matter you might as well not not get it done so he makes the point in verse 26 uncircumcised law keepers <laughs> are considered circumcised in God's sight and will judge the circumcised to break the law look at how Paul turned the tables around here 
Here's the, the Jew, the guide to the blind, the teacher of the immature, the judger of the Gentile, who is now under the judgment of the Gentile. He's being judged by the Gentile, keeps the law, while the Pharisee, the hypocritical Pharisee, doesn't. And it's just, it's incredible what, what Paul does here theologically through this argument. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 12 to, to the Jews. In Matthew 12, 41 through 42, he said, Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Queen of the South, she came and responded to the wisdom of Solomon. He says, these two people, or people group, and, and the Queen of Sheba, she's going to come and she's going to condemn the religious leaders of Jesus' generation because they received the greater revelation, the Messiah himself, and yet they didn't respond to him. And yet they responded to a lesser revelation. And uh, they didn't repent at the Messiah's coming. They thought their religious works were good enough. So Paul makes the point, in God's sight, circumcision minus obedience equals no circumcision. No circumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. So what matters to God the most is not the label, it's the contents, isn't it? The contents are always more important than the label. The reality is always more important than the ritual. You can say the same with baptism. Why get baptized if the reality of the Spirit isn't in your heart? won't do you any good. If you're just using it as salvation points to get you to heaven, if you don't have faith in Christ, there's no point in doing it. The reality for the Jew should be that his heart was circumcised. Remember when God talked about that in the Old Testament? Deuteronomy chapter 10, chapter 30, Jeremiah 4. He says, circumcise your hearts first. That's what he cares about the most. And that's what Paul gets to in, in the last couple of verses here. Um, a Jew might have said, I was, you know, I, okay, I, okay I, I couldn't keep the law. And okay, circumcision is not the most important thing. But I am, an, I am a Jew, I'm a son of Abraham. That's what they told Jesus in John 8, 33. And Paul just says, look, any of these externals don't matter. He says, verse 28, but he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. It's like he just quit worrying about the externals. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Natural birth cannot save you. Uh, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter of the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So just because you're a Jew outwardly doesn't mean you're a Jew inwardly. He's saying family heritage, being a descendant of Abraham by blood, doesn't automatically save you. It's external, just like circumcision. God is after something internal. What impresses him is not physical circumcision, it's spiritual circumcision of the heart. Not natural birth, but spiritual birth by the Spirit of God that happens the moment someone believes in Christ and relies on him for their salvation. So God is after an inward transformation by the Spirit through faith in Christ. The true Jew, he says, is the one who is the Jew inwardly. And later, in Romans 9-11, through 11, Paul is going to teach 
He's going to develop this concept more. He's going to teach that not every Jew is a true Jew. He's going to teach that there's a believing remnant of Israel within Israel that does believe. And so this is what I think he calls the, the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. There's, there's them who believe in Christ, then there's the Israel of God. I think he's talking about the Jews who believe in contrast to the Jews who don't believe. He's talking about the believing remnant. And these Jews who believe are sometimes referred to today as Messianic Jews or completed Jews. Maybe you've heard that term before. That's because they're Jews inside and out. The contents match the label. They're part of what Paul would call the, the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's what he says in Philippians 3. We're part of that too. We're the true circumcision. We're sons of Abraham by faith. It's a pretty neat thing. But those are the kind of people that not only give praise to God, the ones who don't rely upon themselves and rely on Christ for their righteousness, they don't only give praise to God with their lives. Look what it says at the end of verse 29. They get praise from God. Wow. Jew means praising God. The real Jew who trusts in Christ is going to get praise from God. You see the play on words there? Isn't that It's mind-blowing. Romans is good stuff. But in summary, what, what Paul said about the Jew in verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. We could say the same thing about a true Christian today. He is not a Christian who is one outwardly. He is a Christian who is one inwardly. If you ask many professing Christians today, if they're going to heaven, a lot of them are going to respond with external works and labels. Like, I was raised in... Well, first, some people just assume because they're American that they're a Christian. Let's get that out of the, off the table. I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. No. Some people might turn to the name of their church. Well, I'm a Presbyterian Catholic Anglican or whatever. I'm a... I'm a Baptist, I'm, I go to a Bible church, I'm a Berean, therefore I'm saved. So they, they take the label of their church and assume that they're saved because they go to that church. Or they say, I'm a member of this such and such church. I was catechized, I've been instructed in the Bible, I've read my Bible, I was baptized, I took communion, I was confirmed, I gave money to the church, what else does God want from me? I'm See? What's missing from their answers? Christ. It's a Christless testimony. They're relying on a lot of things. Might have done a lot of works in his name. Matthew 7, ring a bell. But did they actually trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior alone? It can't be Christ plus anything. It can't be Christ plus circumcision it can't be christ plus baptism that's another gospel it's christ because he died for your sins 
<laughs> Isn't that good news? I hope that just comes over you guys this morning like a breath of fresh air. That is grace. Free, unmerited, pure grace. Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Any ungodly people here? Without God, unlike God, his faith is credited as righteousness, declared righteous. Because of what he did. Ponder that. Think about that. What are you really trusting in for your salvation? Christ or religious works? You call yourself a Christian. You have the label. But are you really trusting in Christ for your salvation? Do the contents of your trust match the label? That's the question we finish with this morning. Only when you trust in him alone are you going to bring praise to God and get praise from God. And uh, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd encourage you to do that today. Call out to him to be your Savior this morning. Rely on him alone. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word because it is powerful in our lives and your gospel is so refreshing to hear preached everything in us wants to treat heaven like it's some sort of game that if we just do this and that we can score up some points to get into heaven and what good news it is that Jesus Christ came and he paid it all for us. Lord, in light of that, help us just to live for you and continue to bring you praise and and glory with our lives. May the content of our lives uh, match the label that we have, which is a little Christ, a Christ follower. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.